0: this work and find what I'm doing here and it really really matters uh, as small as that may seem so if you can please do that uh, before we get into the show I much appreciate it thank you for listening let's get into it peace
1: peace I'm Justice. my brother justice Raji
0: man so um if, if it probably comes through with my voice I'm still recovering from uh from 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 illness so my voice is a little a little raspy scratchy um but you know happy to be feeling mostly well um so to get something you know get something up on on the, on the board as uh you know I say, you get some shots up at towards the rim um today you know we try to take it light and uh maybe just share some reading uh, we we are um, jumping into in in the new year here in the, the opening months of the year um so what I was going to do is maybe give you the first one, and then, I, then I'll, I'll give you uh, mine, which I go maybe three for three.
1: Uh, sound good? Okay. Uh, all good. Um, so the first one is um, a book that I've been getting into. Um, I didn't buy it in this season, but I'm kind of re-digging into it, if that's a term. <laughs> um, you know, that black vernacular. Um <laughs> And it's called From Storefront to Monument, um, and it's about tracing the public history of the Black Museum movement by Andrea A. Burns. Yeah. And um, basically what it does is it follows the history of four museums in um, four museums about Black and, and African-American history. Um, the DuSable uh, in Chicago, um, the International Afro-American Museum in Detroit the Anacostia Museum in Washington, D.C., which I didn't know a lot about. And then finally, the African-American Museum um, in Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. And how you have these four um, that all had ties to the Black Power Movement. And the idea was that, you know, again, going from the civil rights to the Black Power Movement and the time of thinking about how do you start to chronicle Black people's existence in America Mm-hmm. Now when we have the Smithsonian, I think a lot of us can take that for granted. Um, but if you're thinking prior to the Smithsonian, um, there were there were not a lot of cities in America where you could go and actually find the history of black people chronicled in a way that black people were doing it. Yeah. Um, and this book is really interesting in that it talks about that process of like, how do you deal with the larger museum movements and the relationship? Hmm. So, right, it's like how you actually function with all those movements, with those like institutions. Um, black people's support of the black museums. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in D.C., obviously the relationship to the Smithsonian's. Um, in Philadelphia, the process of the Black African American Museum being developed during the bicentennial, and the the out and out racism of the Rizzo administration and others and where they were supposed to put it and everything like that. So it's really interesting again, to kind of go back a little bit to think about what were people trying to do to chronicle history Um, and the challenges and benefits of being, it being centralized and decentralized. And now I would argue that you have more information than ever, but you know, besides the smithsonians how many people get to get to places where they can see black history and, and as important if not more important how many other people globally get to understand our history and not just our struggle yeah because there's this challenge of like when you think about other museums it's like oh look at these artifacts when for us it's like a piece of martin luther king's shirt that got ripped off Right. right. Then when he died, <laughs> and then like, you know what I'm saying? Uh, Malcolm X, el Hajj Shabazz is, you know, uh, bifocals. Like, you know what I mean? Like, like, yeah. you know, our, our history is more than that. And I think that, you know, for people to be able to chronicle a, a people's history in a way from their lens that shows who they are in the entire spectrum kind of is important. So for all, you know, for folks interested in kind of like, you know how the civil rights and black power movements produced institutions, and even today, how those institutions are functioning. Because um, the African American Museum of Philly, in particular, you know now is moving um, to the other by the other museums because um, there was okay. a lot of. Um, yeah, yeah, it was
0: sound like. Uh... yeah so even the history
1: that like it was down by eighth street um and by chinatown which was a debate because originally it was supposed to be put in society hill which was a newly redeveloped area um but frankly white folks didn't want black folks down there Mm -hmm. so they moved it over to a place that they eventually would put a jail (laughs) in a shopping mall right? right and it had no context to the history of black people in philadelphia where you should have put it in Society Hill or close to Mother Bethel A.M.E. Church. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm mean, again, even the placings of, ho- of 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 museums mean a lot, yeah. and so this book kind of goes into it. So I would suggest it for people trying to look at some of the other pieces of how we were thinking about to institutionalize the self awareness of of Black people in America during that time.
0: No, no. All right, so for my first one, and i you know, I mean, I, I make no promises. Of, uh, well, I, I've been trying to be happy, is all I'm going to say. So um, I had the opportunity to go to New Orleans for the first time at the start of the year. Um, and um, during that, I took a tour uh, with a sister. Uh, shout out to all uh, about that tour. So, you know what I mean, she was, just, um, it was um, uh, I say, Michaela, I, if I mispronounce it, I'll fix it later. Um was really good uh sister and gave a great tour. Um but really speaking to you know I as anything, you know, sometimes when I go places, especially for the first time, you know, I, I do like to try to get somebody to to tell me stuff about what's happening. You know, I can go read about the ones I understand the the history of New Orleans as a uh you know um cities that predate America, so to speak in america so they're not and i and i
1: will say real quickly i think that's important because we can again we can have a very short-sighted understanding of how america comes to be as identified by the north and south south and states and shit versus like different forces whether it be obviously the native populations who were there the battles they had with themselves, the battles they had with the French, the Spanish, the, you know what I mean? So I think you, to your point, it's important for us to have this thing of like. There were people here doing stuff before this idea of you coming to God, this idea of a country. Yeah. Yeah. And um, so to close
0: out uh, the, uh, the tour that took us up Bayou Road and there's like a string of black businesses there. Um and and at a party, even her, her intent was, you know, when people take the tour to get them, you know, away from the French Quarter, and and actually, you know, touch dates with some local Black folks. Um, so within that, you know, there was a local community bookstore and book set and like you know center kind of for reading and writing and and you know related literary arts, which you know is Maz is like putting me in the kid at the candy store is books that I might not have seen before, so I'm perusing the the shelves. And I come across uh, The Delectable Negro, Human Consumption and Homoeroticism within U.S. Slave Culture uh, by Vincent Woodward. My um, understanding is, Vincent, um, the, the brother, and he actually passed. I don't remember the particular. Um, I don't know if in the forward, it doesn't speak to, I think you know, he man cancer or something of that nature, but he died young, but this was the work he was working on, um, as a PhD or, 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 or to working towards his PhD. Um, and, uh, no, 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 he wasn't, you know, it was a professor. So he, he'd already had his PhD. From, um, and, and it was such a. I haven't, I've only just kind of started to get into it. But when I picked up the book and like walked around the store and was talking to the sister that took us on a tour and the sister, Miss Jenny, shout out to Miss Jenny, um, who's sort of the, the proprietor or like holds down the square at the shop. They both gave me the like, Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You should read that. But you know, give yourself, give, give yourself some air. So, you know, right. you know for us, <laughs> was, I picked, I obviously picked it up because, you know, we'll run away from rigor in this in, in, on this or on this podcast. However, you know, I'm I uh, my intent is the is to slowly walk through sections of it because, you know, I these are all aspects um the brutality of, of slavery in the institution and particularly as it existed in the United States and, and in the Americas. Um and is it, is I still I don't think as a society we we don't do the best at all. <laughs> um, and it's, you know, people who I think are far too comfortable to go like, well, it's just in the past and we don't need to talk about it. And then in, 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 in this particular aspect of it in terms of um the consumption of people, I mean, literally, but also the figurative nature of it, um, particularly as it related, you know, to to black men, it, it is pretty, you know, heavy and there's a lot there. So my intent is to is is to walk through this, you know, hopefully get make some decent headway in the next month and see how you know, uh, you know, if it, if it's a little too much to be able to take a break. Um, but yeah, as a subject matter and someone actually taking time to like really put together something, this was you know, as always, I have a rule. If I see something I, I've never seen before, I'm I I tend to go yeah I should I should try to pick that up so that I can uh. I can, I have access to that to read it because it's it's so many things that it's hard to get access to to even read about us, um, and particularly those things that are worked on by scholars from our community. So, yeah, but that's that's the first one on my list. I will try to be more ex- more happy.
1: The rest, of it. <laughs> yeah, I'm not, obviously, it's just funny. You be like, yeah, let me lay this shit down. it's cannibalism cannibalism. slavery i mean so what you know we built about it a minute uh, uh, before and one of the things i do think we have to as a community in a country take into consideration and this is not just for chattel slavery but i you know because i think also we should take into consideration when looking at the conditions of the relations or lack their power relations or lack thereof between native nations and the state apparatus of mm-hmm. the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, that these things, 1865, and that's it. Depending if you want to frame it like that, we're only talking about, you know, 158 years. Mm-hmm. In the span of human existence, that's a blip. Yeah. Right? In the span of human existence, what happened to people and then what happened 158 years later, they largely were still feeling the impacts of what happened to them. So if they had something that was happening to them for hundreds of years prior and then being 158 years out of the thing that was impacting you for 200 years, you should not expect it not to still have an impact. And the idea that we don't want to talk about it um, is doing a disservice to history, doing a disservice to rigor and doing a disservice to the idea of its multiple of impacts. And that, again, that is to say nothing of, you know, what happened in Reconstruction. We know the the horrors, the white codes, um, Jim Crow, what happened post-Reconstruction, um, sharecropping, which was slavery by any other means but just the legal connotation. Mm-hmm. Uh state-sponsored violence, right? In an, in a very clear form prior. We still have some today. But you know, I, I just think, you know, to, to your point, I think it's important for us to still kind of not downplay the scale and impacts of that trauma. Mm-hmm. Um so let me give my second book. Um, this so there's a writer, there's a couple of writers that I read in the kind of social media platform space, and there's a there's a um, new social media newsletter or website, I guess you want to call it. It's called Puck, and Puck is an interesting one in that it relates and kind of connects to all sources of like. Culture. So they focus on kind of Silicon Valley, they focus on Hollywood, and they focus on Wall Street. Um, and, and also how those all come together. Mm-hmm. Because I think you'll find there's a way that all of those actually come together when you think about the economy and culture of America, that those three essentially frame everything else, right? The the space of tech. You know, broadly defined in Silicon Valley, Hollywood, um, of of media and culture, and then Wall Street with finance. And then the, the, you know, the combination of confluence uh, therein. Um, And one of the writers that writes for Puck is a writer by the name of William Cohen. um, And he's been known for doing a lot of deep writing in regard to the history of companies and the history and the rise in fall of companies. Um, And so he's had a lot of books that focused on Goldman Sachs, um, the history of, you know, J.P. Morgan and and others. And um, his newest book is called Power Failure. And it's, you know, kind of undertitled The Rise and Fall of American Icon. And um, it kind of uses Jack Welsh. And for those who may not be aware, Jack Welsh was kind of like, the way we look at the tech entrepreneurs of today, um, if you want to call some of them that, like Elon Musk and others, Jack Welch was that person of like the early to mid Mm nineties, the hard charging entrepreneur, buying companies everywhere, buying NBC. Um, And there's a generation of people in business school who were framed after being, you know, who were, who were like trying to be Jack Welch. Jack Welch was also known for like, the lowest five to 10, like 10% of performers yeah, in fire. any unit would just fire them. Yeah. Right. Like just, fire, just get rid of them. Right. And, you know, it's, it's an interesting kind of history. And for me, it connected because um, I used to way back when we used to teach entrepreneurship, you know, um, Jack Welsh was kind of held up al- along with entrepreneurs as like, hey, man, you know, if you keep doing this stuff, you could buy companies. When did you be Jack Welch? And it's kind of like, oh, I don't ever want to be Jack Welch. You know, <laughs> you know, it's kind of one of those things of like, you know, you might want to take a look at everything and put it in consideration before you want to be this person. Um, because like most things in American capitalism, it was kind of a precipitous fall um, for GE and, and things like that. But it really is talking about like the fall of the of the idea of General Electric and goes back to Edison. Um, it goes back to the other companies that were pre that were pre-existing Edison. That mm, mm-hmm. is also important to recall. Like Edison wasn't the only person thinking about trying to get light places. <laughs> right. There were other people doing that. Like again, American history can make us think like there was only one person thinking one of anything at one time. Yeah. And history does not record it life being like that. Um and so for me um in my current work but then also just to understand i think to understand american capitalism it's very difficult to start with it it can be problematic just to start with like the slave ships so to speak (laughs) and at the same time you can't do it just looking at elon musk right? right like you have to look at some things in the middle of how did the aggregation of american capitalism start to create so much wealth for so few um you know how did it happen? who did it happen with and also one thing you learn in that is like it was never just an American thing like there was always wealth coming from other places that were investing in American capitalism, and that's another thing that we kind of you know uh to paraphrase Rick Springsteen this whole born in the u s a idea that we think like <laughs> we closed off our borders and accept money from nobody else, which now right. we know to be false. Right. right, since since China, Japan own um, <laughs> like half, half half of San Francisco, you know bonds on thirty percent of the shit in this country. Yeah, you know, but it's kind of like so for me, just to be someone that understands, um, you know, tries to understand American capitalism to to identify how, frankly, you know, original people, you know, uh, are going to function in it are going to function outside of it, are going to engage with it, not just locally, but globally. So it's it's a book well worth reading. I mean, it, it you know, it's it's tedious, but I think tedious in a way that gives some context of like, how did a company that started making lights and, you know, doing wholesale stuff for parts for lights end up, you know, buying NBC. Right. You know, yeah. and, the, and the variety of things that occurred.
0: Yeah, and, and I mean... Oddly enough, when I was in New Orleans, <laughs> the sister that was on the tour with us, this other couple, um, I mentioned the GE train factory in Erie, and and she was actually an engineer or software engineer at the GE, whatever, you know, I think they still do train stuff in Erie. But she was from there, which I thought was crazy. I was like,
1: "Yeah, absolutely, they like, still do." Yeah,
0: you know what I'm saying, but it, but it was such a you know odd coincidence. She was like, "Oh wow, how did you know about that?" I'm like, hey, man, you know, I'm out here worldwide, international. I be knowing stuff. That's what I do. But the um, you know one time GE made everything from like nucle- like equipment for nuclear power plants to like toast <laughs> or like you know freezer stuff. Oh,
1: absolutely. Stuff. No, absolutely. <laughs>
0: Yeah, you know I'm saying, and, and Jack Welsh was that is that that figure of like, yeah, you know, him and like Lee Iacocca, uh, who was the other one from the '80s. Uh huh. Lee Iacocca, I think, was more of the, yeah, but and those, Chrysler. Yeah, yeah, Chrysler. But the um, if if you ever have a person, if you were a person that watched Thirty Rock, you know, the 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 parody of the the, the interplay between entertainment and and corporate ambition, you know, is is based on kind of teasing at Jack Welsh. You know what I'm saying, like, that's that's what's happening there, but yeah, that's dope. I would check that out. Um, so, uh, from the second one, and, and I don't know a lot about this, but the, the context of it is, is what's important. So, you know, I'll be trying to, um, you know, I guess, encounter to <coughs> pardon the uh, you know, more heavy nonfiction stuff. I, I do try to assertively uh, make sure I read some fiction, and so. Um, Samuel delaney is one of the most you know, renowned, you know, black science fiction writers of the, the past, the previous century. And I've read some of his short stories, but I've not read many of his novels. So I had it on my list to like, you know, get get just get just pick one to read. And that's what I, I've done in the past when like. You know, I, I got like, where do you start? How do you read? I just I used to go to the library and pick one, and read it. You know, that's how I got to know Octavia Butler's work. I was like, oh, that looks interesting. I just grabbed it, started reading it, you know, see what happens. So I decided, um, actually, after reading um, the article you sent me on uh uh Greg Tate, um, and he mentions Dahlgren, and then I was like, oh, yeah, I've heard that story before. I've never read it. So I just went and got it. And so that's one of the, you know, my, my, I'm actually trying to knock that out this week just as some, uh, and, and, uh, this week and the next, I gotta, uh, travel, uh, to New Jersey for a week, check on the folks in a week and a half. So, you know, when I'm away from here, I I have a lot of time by myself or, you know, do my thoughts. So therefore, uh, you know, I don't know what story's about. I mean, it's science fiction. And if you've read any of Delaney's other stories, short stories, they're sometimes a bit like abstract. You got to like kind of wander into it for a little while to figure out what the hell, what's going on? Like who, what, where, like, you know, there's questions that, which I do enjoy. He doesn't like some of the stories that I've read. Don't answer like, like, why, are this on earth? Like, is this, this, is, is this happening? Where is this happening? And and sometimes, you know, I think it's good as a, as a reading as a voyage, to read something and be uncomfortable but keep going or, or be unsure and keep going so um, yeah so that's on my list I, I, I don't have any other details but
1: I'd be happy to tell no when one I get thing there. is helpful one thing and thank you for that one thing I, you know and I have been working on reading more fiction as well um, you know science fiction in, in particular I think it's important because um, you know, if you know, many people have seen the whole art, the art installation there, are black people in the future and things like that and mm-hmm. how are we in the future? You know, and you know, that was always a running joke in the eighties and nineties about it wasn't, you know, one of the niggas on the Jetsons. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> it was telling you what you didn't what you didn't think about. It wasn't there. Um you know, but I, I do think that 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 is important. And, you know, I'm going to use it as a way to plug in. If anyone that hasn't read or learned about Greg Tate, you should do it immediately. Um, if you should go get Flyboy Boy in the Buttermilk. Mm-hmm. Um, again, I think that those writings of the 80s are important because we can um, we can forget that there was a lot of good writing happening in the 80s that wasn't just our scholars and our scholars obviously are are so important mm-hmm. um but there were other writers there were writers in the village voice um there were writers in periodicals across the country that were creating um fiction or just writing in ways that was compelling telling the stories of that time and i think we could do ourselves a disservice um when we don't Read what was being written um about you know not just about black people and about our you know our our historical r- greatness, but also just about what was happening you know our our take of our jazz artists, our take of you know even people have their own issues with them, but Stanley Crouch, I mean, I think you you know Stanley Crouch is worth reading if nothing else is to understand what it meant when a black man became someone who just was a critic. You know, that he didn't have the pressure of having to, like, speak for all black people. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and and what does that look like when you don't have to have that pressure? So thank you for for sharing for that one. Um, My third one is one I haven't gotten into, um, but it has some confluence with things we've discussed prior. Um, It's the uh, boss of Black Brooklyn. Mm. The Life and Times of Bertram Baker. Yeah, I I copped it got it as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, And, you know, the interesting thing about this for folks that Bertram Baker was like the virtual kingmaker um, of Black Brooklyn at a time that there were not as many Black people. I think with the cultural institution of the idea that is now Brooklyn, we can forget that it was a time that it wasn't a whole bunch of Black folks in Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. Um, and what that meant and that the, the vast majority of black people at one time in New York were in Harlem. Um, and also that what came with the cultural and political power of Harlem. Um, you know, it goes without saying of the cultural Renaissance and things like, uh, the, you know, Apollo theater and the Schomburg Um, and if you think about, for example, a law school in Mecca, if you think about temple number no. seven, Mm-hmm. Um, you think about, you know, Abyssinian Baptist Church. Um, you end up seeing that Harlem becomes this cultural capital. Um, but at the same time, starting in like the thirties and forties, you start to see a huge influx of uh West Indians um coming, leaving their native islands, you know, coming to Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. I mean, there were already a lot of folks in Harlem, which is a conversation we've discussed kind of around the end of the year of this idea that like all black folks in America didn't just come from the south right that we that we have to like <laughs> we have to debunk that notion mm-hmm. um, but that you know specifically in places like Brooklyn, you see a lot of us Indians leaving those um smaller countries and smaller locales and coming to New York in droves and then Some of the power being shifted over to Brooklyn just because of the population shift and how Bertram uh, Baker navigated that with the, you know, Brooklyn political machine. Mm -hmm. Um, And so now when we look in, you look uh, in, you see Mm -hmm. Hakeem Jeffries and Charles Schumer, you see uh, ostensibly other than the president, the two probably most powerful people in the United States government. Are from Brooklyn. Obviously, Charles Schumer is a uh, is is a Jewish from Brooklyn. But you know, Hakeem Jeffries being from Central Brooklyn, um, and the history of that, and even the, you know, we think about the Gang of Four. Um, and the Gang of Four were, you know, four, the four powerful, um, black electeds or influencers, um, in Harlem during the '60s and '70s and everything like that. And then now you look at the black political power in New York and it's in Brooklyn and Queens, right? In Southeast Queens. So it, it's good for us to understand our migration patterns because there's also this idea of every time we leave a place, it's always because we're being pushed out. And also history does not record that. Hmm. Right? Like people choose to go places, right? Black people have av- have choice and, and and advocacy and you know the ability to make decisions of where they want to be. So even the the shift of political power to Brooklyn and Queens um, in New York. I think it's a fascinating one um, that plays itself out in a lot of major cities, frankly, either uh, you know to other places in the city or to places um, in the suburbs, you know what I mean? Where you see the power of that happening. So um, so yeah, so I would say the book is good. And one more thing I'll say about it is also Bertrand Baker one thing we've talked about he also led um for 30 years he led the ATA and that's the American Tennis Association hmm. and that's the, you know the, the Black Tennis Association that you know folks may not know that for a long time black folks couldn't play in the USTA yep the United States Tennis Association so we had to have our own tennis association and it still is up and running and at tournaments all across the country um and he one of the things he did is negotiated with white tennis administrators, so that Althea Gibson, you know, from Newark, New Jersey, mm-hmm. could be able to play in tournaments, right? So there's a lot of people who histor- historically go nameless, but had huge impacts on what we see. Okay. And so um, this book is, you know, like I said, I've, I've got a little bit into it, but just the broader, my broader interest in the history of black folks and what it means for us in a, a kind of an urban context and what it means around our institutions, um, is definitely worth uh, worth checking out.
0: Nope. Nope. So um my last one, actually I guess it would be more, more, more fun. And I, you know, my other uh, affliction as a person that likes books is that I get books and I don't have time to always read them when I get them. But I got them. You know what I'm saying? So um, and I think I might have mentioned grabbing this a ways back, but uh, franchise, uh, the Golden Arches in Black America by uh, Marsha Chaitlin. Okay, and it's basically about sort of I mean, the history of um, you know, the the uh, the McDonald's Black franchise owners. You know, what I mean, and and going back to I want to say back to the '60s, um, but you know, historically in terms of franchise access um of the major uh you know fast food or franchisable franchises mm-hmm. uh, black owners in mcdonald's are a, a, you know a pretty significant situation
1: you know what i'm saying absolutely i um,
0: mean even and even the um the internal like management structure where people you know become you know managers within mcdonald's um and managing mcdonald's uh, for whatever level of external esteem sometimes we give those places, and and you know, not to mention the discussion of where how much fast food one should be eating, but this isn't a health discussion, it's a business discussion. Um, but it, it, it is actually pretty significant. Uh, and I want to say, I don't remember if it's in this one, I know that there was, um, there's a couple different instances at different times. Like, I know the uh, I think the LA area, like McDonald's franchise, black franchise owners had a significant. Um, impact on some things in the L.A. area, other things. So uh, it, it's a lot in here, but I think it's something just even discussing the reality of like, um, you know, black economic mobility, black, you know, attempts to, you know, to to build businesses, um, you know, whatever they may be. I think there's a there's a great untold, you know, untold stories, a lot to learn. It went in there. And um, so it's something I've had on on the shelf for a minute. You know, try to get it off the shelf. I think it's gonna be my counter nonfiction material to read with the other drawing. So that way I can go read something
1: <laughs> that's not well now you talked about it, so it gotta come off the shelf. So oh, yeah. everybody that listen to the good brothers, when you see just black like, hey Jess, what's going on with that franchise book, spent- man? Right, where you that, man. <laughs> Tell me
0: something. Tell me something good, brother. <laughs> <laughs> You, know, you, know, you read a book and some adult would be like, Hey man, what's going on? Tell me what's up in with that book? Like, you know, pull up on you almost like, you know, you was over there reading it. Man, tell me something. You know, you have to
1: Listen, you know, black folks, man. I do it to this day sometimes. Besides, I'm like, so what's your take on that? <laughs> How you see that? <laughs> He'd be looking at me like, dog, I just read the fucking book. I mean like, you know, but you're right, black people, like you over there reading. We appreciate that you're smart and shit. What's going on with that book? Tell me something good. What's going on in there? Huh? <laughs> no so, Right. Like, you ain't gonna do nothing with the shit either. That'd be the You'd be like, what's going on there?" that. Oh, right. You I know, mean, get that that, you know, job well done, but I'm not gonna do anything with this information. Uh, you know what I mean? Kind of. Um mm. so I, I wanna say just, you know, it's always good. You know, we we talk about a lot of heavy stuff, and you know, you're a real heavy mother <laughs> 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 It's about cannibalism and shit. <laughs> Man. Um uh, But, you know, this is the place in, you know, where I have to say, I want to, I want to phrase this correctly. If the person you like don't read, don't do it to them. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Mm
0: -hmm,
1: mm -hmm. Male, female. We got to stop this not reading shit, man. Like this, this being okay with like. In our community, to not read. I'm not talking about, you know, this is not an elitist, you got to have a library. I'm not talking about that because it could be various forms of how you receive information. However, it is science that reading something provides a different form of comprehension than just listening to it. Yeah. Like that's not, I didn't make that up. You know, y'all can, you know, you would say, Judge, you can go check on that. Yeah. Like, you got to read. Right. And so we have to be very careful to send the message and, and, you know, to say nothing of the variety of scholars who did so much in reading when it was so much more difficult to get information. This is not a tearjerker or a pressure maker, but just to say if that person ain't in the reading, give him a little bump. <laughs> you hey, listen, man. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, we, um,
0: this is a pro-reading household. You know what I'm saying? We have Kate reading at all times. And you know, you ain't gotta read all the same. Yeah, I ain't gonna make you read. I ain't gonna make you read. I ain't gonna pick it for you, but read stuff. You know what I'm saying? Read a book, pick up something. If if um, you know, as I used to tell people, tell people all the time, read to your kids every day. If you got especially if you got young kids so they get old enough that they be like, Look, I'm going to my room by myself. I don't want you in here right now. Like, all right, we're going in there then. You know what I'm saying? Do your own thing. <laughs> And read it. <laughs> right. But right. reads you, you gonna read some books. You know <laughs> you know, you're gonna tell me you ain't reading no books, but absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, I, I think I think a lot of stuff uh a lot of stuff shakes out because people, you know, you can tell somebody, like, oh, you ain't really read nothing about that. You just talking about it. That's cool. That's all right. You know what I'm saying? I appreciate I appreciate your contribution to the conversation. But what you go on and-
1: But I really don't because <laughs> you didn't read because cause you don't have no fucking context, dog. Like, no, like listen. I will pull you here. I really don't. You ain't <laughs> read nothing about this shit or you will handle source material. I really don't appreciate what you got to say about it because it was it based on
0: Right.
1: Like, like, but you know, I mean, that's how you start getting to like conspiracy theorists and all conspiracies aren't wrong. So don't get me wrong here. But however, you know, it can get unfounded when you haven't had the source material. You can't get to the book. You can't get to the origin of a like is it true or not? Have you cross referenced it? Right. Yeah. And that's a rigor that we, that I'm going to say black folks expected from each other for a long time that we have to be careful that we lose in a, in this time of having, uh, access to more information. Absolutely. Absolutely. So,
0: um, you know, with that, uh, you know, uh, uh, until next time, that's all I got. You know what I'm saying? Be safe. You know what I'm saying? Don't, don't put your hand in no chicken grease. And, um, you know what I mean? Uh, you know, lay 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 off the uh, lay off the 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 you know the, the brown water maybe if if you, if you went a little hard for New Year's. I know it's
1: almost the end of the month, but I'm saying some people probably need to hear that. You know I'm saying? If you listen, if you can't get dry, at least get damp. That's what. <laughs> if you ain't having a dry January, at least you get a damp January. Jack, try not to have a wet January. <laughs> you know what I mean, be what
0: you can. Straight up, straight up. So with that, I say peace, peace. Thank you for listening to Good Brothers. Thank you to my good brother, Majestic. Uh, good Brothers is a part of the Asher Overhead Podcast, and um, it's a regular conversation with my good brother. And um, thank you for listening. You can support the podcast by listening, sharing, um, and rating and subscribing wherever you listen. Uh, that is the most important thing. Um, after that, if you want to do more, if you want to do other. You can search Justice Raji on Patreon and become a patron and make a regular monthly contribution to the podcast. Uh, but also, and I guess I should be better at this, but uh, you know, uh, there are new versions of the Art to Culture sweatshirt available on the Etsy shop, uh, soon to be available directly on AsherOleHead.com. So if you want to wait till I do that, which will make um, you know the sales experience a little more dynamic. Um, But in any event, please support um, in any way that works for you. And even if just listening works for you, that's peace. So um, no pressure. Uh, Appreciate you and more to come. Peace.